Chapter Two, Part Two of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. George Eliot, Part Two. This is a very noble and defensible view, and one must speak respectfully of any theory of work which would produce such fruit as Romola and Middlemarch but it testifies to that side of George Eliot's nature which was weakest, the absence of free aesthetic life. I venture this remark in the face of a passage quoted from one of her letters in Mr. Cross's third volume. It gives the hand, as it were, to several other instances that may be found in the same pages. My function is that of the aesthetic, not the doctrinal teacher, the rousing of the nobler emotions, which make mankind desire the social right, not the prescribing of special measures, concerning which the artistic mind, however strongly moved by social sympathy, is often not the best judge. That is the passage referred to in my parenthetic allusion, and it is a good general description of the manner in which George Eliot may be said to have acted on her generation. But the artistic mind, the possession of which it implies, existed in her with limitations remarkable in a writer whose imagination was so rich. We feel in her always that she proceeds from the abstract to the concrete, that her figures and situations are evolved, as the phrase is, from her moral consciousness, and are only indirectly the products of observation. They are deeply studied and massively supported, but they are not seen in the irresponsible plastic way. The world was, first and foremost, for George Eliot, the moral, the intellectual world. The personal spectacle came after and, lovingly, humanly, as she regarded it, we constantly feel that she cares for the things she finds in it only so far as they are types. The philosophic door is always open on her stage, and we are aware that the somewhat cooling draft of ethical purpose draws across it. This constitutes half the beauty of her work. The constant reference to ideas may be an excellent source of one kind of reality, for, after all, the secret of seeing a thing well is not necessarily that you see nothing else. Her preoccupation with the universe helped to make her characters strike you as also belonging to it. It raised the roof, widened the area of her aesthetic structure. Nothing is finer in her genius than the combination of her love of general truth and love of the special case. Without this, indeed, we should not have heard of her as a novelist, for the passion of the special case is surely the basis of the storyteller's art. All the same, that little sign of all that Balzac failed to suggest to her showed at what perils the special case got itself considered. Such dangers increased as her activity proceeded, and many judges, perhaps, hold that in her ultimate work, in Middlemarch and Daniel Deronda, especially the latter, is ceased to be considered at all. 
Such critics assure us that Gwendolen and Grandcourt, Deronda and Myra, are not concrete images, but disembodied types, pale abstractions, signs and symbols of a great lesson. I give up Deronda and Myra to the objector, but Grandcourt and Gwendolen seem to me to have a kind of superior reality, to be, in a high degree, what one demands of a figure in a novel, planted on their legs, and complete. The truth is, perception and reflection at the outset divided George Eliot's great talent between them. But as time went on, circumstances led the latter to develop itself at the expense of the former, one of these circumstances being apparently the influence of George Henry Lewes. Lewes was interested in science, in cosmic problems, and though his companion, thanks to the original bent of her versatile, powerful mind, needed no impulse from without to turn herself to speculation, Yet the contagion of his studies pushed her further than she would otherwise have gone in the direction of scientific observation, which is but another form of what I have called reflection. Her early novels are full of natural as distinguished from systematic observation, though even in them it is less the dominant note, I think, than the love of the moral, the reaction of thought, in the face of the human comedy. They had observation sufficient, at any rate, to make their fortune, and it may well be said that this is enough for any novel. In Silas Marner, in Adam Bede, the quality seems gilded by a sort of autumn haze, an afternoon light of meditation, which mitigates the sharpness of portraiture. I doubt very much whether the author herself had a clear vision, for instance, of the marriage of Dinah Morris to Adam, or of the rescue of Hetty from the scaffold at the eleventh hour. The reason of this may be, indeed, that her perception was a perception of nature much more than of art, and that these particular incidents do not belong to nature, to my sense at least, by which I do not mean that they belong to a very happy art. I cite them, on the contrary, as an evidence of artistic weakness. They are a very good example of the view in which a story must have marriages and rescues in the nick of time as a matter of course. I must add, in fairness to George Eliot, that the marriage of the nun-like Dinah, which shocks the reader, who sees in it a base concession, was a trouvelle of Luz, and is a small sign of that same faulty judgment in literary things which led him to throw his influence on the side of her writing verse, verse which is all reflection, with direct vivifying vision or emotion remarkably absent. It is a part of this same limitation of the pleasure she was capable of taking in the fact of representation for itself that the various journals and notes of her visits to the continent are, though by no means destitute of the tempered enjoyment of foreign sights, which was as near as she ever came to rapture, singularly vague in expression on the subject of the general and particular spectacle, the life and manners, the works of art. 
she enumerates diligently all the pictures and statues she sees and the way she does so is a proof of her active earnest intellectual habits but it is rarely apparent that they have said much to her or that what they have said is one of their deeper secrets she is capable of writing after coming out of the great chapel of san lorenzo in florence that the world-famous statues of michelangelo on the tombs remained to us as affected and exaggerated in the original as in copies and casts that sentence startles one on the part of the author of romola and that mr cross should have printed it is a commendable proof of his impartiality it was in romola precisely that the equilibrium i spoke of just now was lost and that reflection began to weigh down the scale romola is pre-eminently a study of the human conscience in a historical setting which is studied almost as much and few passages in mr cross's volumes are more interesting than those relating to the production of this magnificent romance George Eliot took all her work with a noble seriousness, but into none of it did she throw herself with more passion. It drained from her as much as she gave to it, and none of her writing ploughed into her, to use her biographer's expression, so deeply. She told him that she began it as a young woman, and finished it an old one more than any of her novels it was evolved as i have said from her moral consciousness a moral consciousness encircled by a prodigious amount of literary research her literary ideal was at all times of the highest but in the preparation of romola it placed her under a control absolutely religious she read innumerable books some of them bearing only remotely on her subject and consulted without stint contemporary records and documents she neglected nothing that would enable her to live intellectually in the period she had undertaken to describe we know for the most part i think the result romola is on the whole the finest thing she wrote but its defects are almost on the scale of its beauties. The great defect is that, except in the person of Tito Melema, it does not seem positively to live. It is overladen with learning, it smells of the lamp, it tastes just perceptibly of pedantry. In spite of its want of blood, however, it assuredly will survive in men's remembrance, for the finest pages in it belong to the finest part of our literature. It is on the whole a failure, but such a failure as only a great talent can produce, and one may say of it that there are many great hits far less interesting than such a mistake." A twentieth part of the erudition would have sufficed, would have given us the feeling and color of the time, if there had been more of the breath of the Florentine streets, more of the faculty of optical evocation, a greater saturation of the senses with the elements of the adorable little city. The difficulty with the book, for the most part, is that it is not Italian, it has always seemed to me the most germanic of the author's productions 
I cannot imagine a German writing, in the way of a novel, anything half so good. But if I could imagine it, I should suppose Romola to be very much the sort of picture he would achieve, the sort of medium through which he would show us how, by the Arno's side, the fifteenth century came to an end. One of the sources of interest in the book is that, more than any of its companions, it indicates how much George Eliot proceeded by reflection and research, how little important, comparatively, she thought that same breath of the streets. It carries to a maximum the indoor quality. The most definite impression produced, perhaps, by Mr. Cross's volumes, by the second and third, is that of simple success, success which had been the result of no external accidents, unless her union with Luz be so denominated, but was involved in the very faculties nature had given her. All the elements of an eventual happy fortune met in her constitution. The great foundation, to begin with, was there, the magnificent mind, vigorous, luminous, and eminently sane. To her intellectual vigor, her immense facility, her exemption from cerebral lassitude, her letters and journals bear the most copious testimony. Her daily stint of arduous reading and writing was of the largest her ability, as one may express it in the most general way, was astonishing, and it belonged to every season of her long and fruitful career. Her passion for study encountered no impediment, but was able to make everything feed and support it. The extent and variety of her knowledge is by itself the measure of a capacity which triumphed wherever it wished. Add to this an immense special talent, which, as soon as it tries its wings, is found to be adequate to the highest, longest flights, and brings back great material rewards. George Eliot, of course, had drawbacks and difficulties, physical infirmities, constant liabilities to headache, dyspepsia and other illness, to deep depression, to despair about her work but these jolts of the chariot were small in proportion to the impetus acquired, and were hardly greater than was necessary for reminding her of the secret of all ambitious workers in the field of art. That effort, effort, always effort, is the only key to success. Her great furtherance was that, intensely intellectual being as she was, the life of affection and emotion was also widely open to her. She had all the initiation of knowledge and none of its dryness, all the advantages of judgment and all the luxuries of feeling. She had an imagination which enabled her to sit at home with book and pen, and yet enter into the life of other generations, project herself into Warwickshire alehouses and Florentine symposia, reconstitute conditions utterly different from her own. Toward the end, she triumphed over the great impossible, she reconciled the greatest sensibility with the highest serenity. 
She succeeded in guarding her pursuits from intrusion, in carrying out her habits, in sacrificing her work as little as possible, in leading, in the midst of a society united in conspiracies, to interrupt and vulgarize an independent, strenuously personal life. People who had the honor of penetrating into the sequestered precinct of the Priory, the house in London in which she lived from 1863 to 1880, remember well a kind of sanctity in the place, an atmosphere of stillness and concentration, something that suggested a literary temple. It was part of the good fortune of which I speak that in Mr. Lewes she had found the most devoted of caretakers, the most jealous of ministers, a companion through whom all business was transacted. The one drawback of this relation was that, considering what she attempted, it limited her experience too much to itself but for the rest it helped her in a hundred ways it saved her nerves it fortified her privacy it protected her leisure it diminished the friction of living his admiration of her work was of the largest though not always i think truly discriminating and he surrounded her with a sort of temperate zone of independence independence of everything except him and her own standards Nervous, sensitive, delicate in every way in which genius is delicate, except indeed that she had a robust reason, it was a great thing for her to have accident made rare and exposure mitigated. And to this result, Luz, as the administrator of her fame, admirably contributed. He filtered the stream, giving her only the clearer water. The accident of reading reviews of one's productions, especially when they are bad, is, for the artist of our day, one of the most frequent, and Mr. Lewes, by keeping these things out of her way, enabled her to achieve what was perhaps the highest form of her success, an inaccessibility to the newspaper. It is remarkable to me, she writes in 1876, that I have entirely lost my personal melancholy. I often, of course, have melancholy thoughts about the destinies of my fellow creatures, but I am never in that mood of sadness which used to be my frequent visitant even in the midst of external happiness. Her later years, colored by this accumulated wisdom, when she had taken her final form before the world, and had come to be regarded more and more as a teacher and philosopher, are full of suggestion to the critic. But I have exhausted my limited space. There is a certain coldness in them, perhaps, the coldness that results from most of one's opinions being formed, one's mind made up on many great subjects, from the degree, in a word, to which culture had taken the place of the more primitive processes of experience. Ah, les livres, ils nous débordent, ils nous étouffent, nous périssons par les livres. That cry of a distinguished French novelist, there is no harm in mentioning Monsieur Alphonse Daudet, which fell upon the ear of the present writer some time ago, 
represents as little as possible the emotion of George Eliot confronted with literatures and sciences. Monsieur Alphonse Daudet went on to say that, to his mind, the personal impression, the effort of direct observation, was the most precious source of information for the novelist, that nothing could take its place, that the effect of books was constantly to check and pervert this effort, that a second-hand, third-hand, tenth-hand impression was constantly tending to substitute itself for a fresh perception. That we were ending by seeing everything through literature instead of through our own senses, and that in short literature was rapidly killing literature. This view has immense truth on its side, but the case would be too simple if, on one side or the other, there were only one way of finding out. The effort of the novelist is to find out, to know, or at least to see, and no one in the nature of things can less afford to be indifferent to side lights. Books are themselves, unfortunately, an expression of human passions. George Eliot had no doubts at any rate. If Impressionism, before she laid down her pen, had already begun to be talked about, it would have made no difference with her. She would have had no desire to pass for an Impressionist. There is one question we cannot help asking ourselves as we close this record of her life. It is impossible not to let our imagination wander in the direction of what turn her mind or her fortune might have taken if she had never met George Henry Lewes or never cast her lot with his. It is safe to say that, in one way or another, in the long run, her novels would have got themselves written, and it is possible that they would have been more natural, as one may call it, more familiarly and casually human. Would her development have been less systematic, more irresponsible, more personal, and should we have had more of Adam Bede and Silas Marner, and less of Romola and Middlemarch? The question, after all, cannot be answered, and I do not push it, being myself very grateful for Middlemarch and Romola. It is as George Eliot does actually present herself that we must judge her, a condition that will not prevent her from striking us as one of the noblest, most beautiful minds of our time. This impression bears the reader company throughout these letters and notes, it is impossible not to feel, as we close them, that she was an admirable being. They are less brilliant, less entertaining, than we might have hoped. They contain fewer good things, and have even a certain grayness of tone, something measured and subdued, as of a person talking without ever raising her voice. But there rises from them a kind of fragrance of moral elevation, a love of justice, truth, and light, a large, generous way of looking at things, and a constant effort to hold high the torch in the dusky spaces of man's conscience. That is how we see her during the latter years of her life, frail, delicate, shivering a little, much fatigued and considerably spent but still meditating on what could be acquired and imparted.
still living in the intelligence a freer larger life than probably had ever been the portion of any woman to her own sex her memory her example will remain of the highest value those of them for whom the development of woman is the hope of the future ought to erect a monument to george eliot she helped on the cause more than any one in proving how few limitations are of necessity implied in the feminine organism she went so far that such a distance seems enough and in her effort she sacrificed no tenderness no grace there is much talk to-day about things being open to women but george eliot showed that there is nothing that is closed if we criticize her novels we must remember that her nature came first and her work afterwards and that it is not remarkable they should not resemble the productions say of alexander dumas what is remarkable extraordinary and the process remains inscrutable and mysterious is that this quiet anxious sedentary serious invalidical english lady without animal spirits without adventures or sensations should have made us believe that nothing in the world was alien to her should have produced such rich deep masterly pictures of the multiform life of man eighteen eighty five end of chapter two part two george eliot